Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be episode 131, which is part two, roosting strategies, Western style turkey hunting with Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. This is a seven part series, and I hope you guys uh, gain a bunch of uh, knowledge and and see value in these episodes. We're going to try and get as extensive as we can about uh, scouting and hunting turkeys. So we've got a lot of great things coming up in the, in this series. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I'd like to uh, thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Uh, I'd like to remind you that you can follow along our adventures at jscottoutdoors.com. Also on our YouTube channel, J. Scott Outdoors, we've got a lot of good videos there and I've been doing some reorganization of videos and adding new videos so make sure to check that out uh, also on Instagram at J Scott Outdoors and my associate Dar Colburn at Dar Colburn uh, and our guiding website Colburn and Scott Outfitters.com uh, also like to announce that I'm going to be booking uh, 2017 Gould's turkey hunts uh, in Mexico uh, our turkey season here for 2016 is just about ready to get underway. And I've got uh, a bunch of hunters for 2016 down in Sonora and going to be hunting Goulds. And uh, if you'd like any information, you can go to GouldsTurkeyHunt.com. You can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, also, we have Colburn and Scott Outfitters has. A few slots left for the uh, fully outfitted uh, guided coos deer hunts in December and January of 2016 and 17. Uh, we also have some do-it-yourself coos deer ranches available. So uh, again, get a hold of me if, if that's something that interests you. And uh, guys, uh, thanks again. I also want to thank my sponsors, my title sponsor, GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, for their support and my other sponsors, Wilderness Athlete, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter Magazines, Phone Scope, Outdoorsman's, Utah Hydrographics. Uh, without these sponsors, this podcast wouldn't be possible. And without you, the listeners, uh, giving it so much support, it wouldn't be possible. So just a big thanks from me to you. Let's get, uh, oh, this is a, a neat little clip from uh, Jason Harrison of Kuyu. Uh, going to be talking about the new Peloton uh, accessories and talking about the Kenai uh, uh, insulated pants. So uh, check this out and um, you'll enjoy it. Hey everybody, welcome to Kuyu Live, our second live product release in 2016. We've got a great package of products we're going to share with you today. And I'm excited about this because it rounds out a lot of accessories and products uh, using Peloton and Kenai that we've been lacking in the lineup. And last year we introduced Peloton to you, which is our new knit program that uses Prime Flex yarn, no elastic, which is a huge advantage as far as weight and moisture management and durability of our products. And we've had a great response to Peloton. And the knits has given us the ability to really round out our headwear program, um, round out our base layer program on the bottoms, and then we've introduced Kenai into a bottom that I'll show you today as well. This is going to be a pretty quick introduction. We're going to run you through all the products, and then we're going to get to some questions. So if you have any questions, type them in. Uh, love to answer them. Pat's going to pull together the most common questions. Those of you who have seen this before, um, I will go through and answer, and we'll be giving away some free product here at the end. So stay tuned all the way through, and those that are still logged on have a chance to win some product. We start today with um, some of the Peloton base layer bottoms that we've introduced, and you're gonna see them here, um, here on the body forms behind me and next to me. I'm um, gonna start off with the new Kuyu Peloton 130 Boxer. And this is designed um, in an athletic build and design of a boxer that it comes fairly far down on the legs, as you'll see, with a large cuff. We did this because we wanted a boxer that wouldn't ride up. Um, it's got a fly, it's got a uh, articulated fit and a gusseted crotch. So it's, it's gonna fit and move with your body really, really well. Also gonna avoid those legs from riding up. 
And we did it in Peloton versus Merino. We've had a lot of requests for a Merino bottom. We've tested the Merino, downside to Merino, because it's hydrophilic by nature. It pulls moisture into the, into the fabric and holds moisture next to your skin, and it can cause some irritation. Peloton does just the opposite. It's hydrophobic. There's no elastic. It makes a great base layer next to your skin on the bottoms and makes a great boxer shorts. I'm excited about this. Um, we've been testing. I've spent all last season wearing them. Couldn't be happier. Um, a great addition to our lineup last year was this continuous fiber 3D FX that Tori introduced to us, and it's allowed for really breathable insulation and what we call active insulation. And we've taken that same technology that's been so popular in the jackets, and we created a bottom. And we did this a little bit different than the Superdome pants, and we made it a zip-off bottom like our base layers. And people like the flexibility to be able to zip this thing off and zip it off. Zip it on, zip it off, um, depending on the temperature and the conditions. And because it's active insulation, because it breathes so well, there's no coating on this fabrics, we made it as a bottom that you really kind of wear next to your skin like you would a typical base layer bottom like we have with our, with our Merino program. And so this is fully removable. For those of you that have worn our zip-off bottoms, like similar to the Superdown pant, you, you can zip this off and remove it with out having to take your boots or gaiters off. It's also why we have a, a shorter length to these so that your socks cover the lower part of your legs and the bottom doesn't go into your boots or your gaiters. And so we did that with the Kenai. It's a great product for colder weather hunts. And it breathes really well, so it works well in high exertion output so you don't get clammy and, uh, and have that issue you have with typical insulations. We did a Peloton 130 zip off bottom as well. Again, with Peloton, really, really amazing moisture management, zero elastic. And this stuff is literally dry coming out of the spin cycle of a washing machine. If you wear it, you'll never wear anything that dries as fast as this product. And so we did a zip-off bottom. And we also did a 200-weight zip-off bottom as well. And those of you that have used our Peloton 200, you felt this fabric. It's really amazing. It's got a jersey face. It's really durable, a brushed fleece back that is incredibly comfortable and lofty. And for the weight, it gives an amazing amount of warmth. It's got an incredible warmth to weight ratios. Um, and how we look at insulation properties, that's a really, really key factor. So great addition for your mid to late season hunts, zip off style so you can take them right off without having to take your boots off. The part of Peloton that I'm most excited about is our headwear. So I felt like we were really lacking on our beanie program with the guide beanie. And um, also be able to roll into like balaclavas and warmer neck gaiters because we just didn't have the fabrics to do it with, which we do now with Peloton. So we worked on some new designs and concepts and I'm going to take it from really the warmest beanie down to um, our 130 beanie, which is going to be for, for warmer weather conditions, moisture management. But we came out with the 240 beanie, which has an articulated shape. So it's going to come up across your forehead and down around your ears and the back of your neck as you can probably see here. What's great about the 240 fabric is it's a bonded fabric. So it's wind resistant by construction. There's no membrane, so you're still gonna have breathability through it. But it's gonna give you that wind protection in cold weather. Then we put in over the years, so you can hear better, the 200 fabric, which is important, because 240 fabric is gonna limit the, your ability to hear. And so that, that gives, uh, gives that coverage on the ears without giving up noise reduction. And then the shape of this thing being anatomical makes it incredibly comfortable. And it's a beanie you'll put on and literally never want to take off. It's an outstanding design. It's got a stretch panel back here, so you get a nice firm fit, um, but not an uncomfortable restrictive type of fit like you may have had with other beanies. So we came up with, we took the 200 fabric that I was talking about with the jersey face fleece, the micro brush backing, We've come out with another beanie in that weight. This one's more of a standard cut beanie like you'll find with our Merino beanie program. And we made also a, a nice kind of mid to late season neck gaiter. So you can turn this into a balaclava um, by using your neck gaiter and give yourself protection. Um, and this is a great addition to the lineup for your colder later season hunts. We desperately needed this in our lineup. Something else we've had a lot of requests for from our customers you always appreciate your feedback on new products is the balaclava. And this is made out of 200 gram uh, Peloton fabric. So you've got the jersey face 
with a brush fleece on the inside, so you're gonna get great, great warmth and great coverage around your face. And those of you that like a balaclava, this is as good as it gets as far as fabrics and materials for balaclava. And um, again, this is nice addition to those later season hunts. And then we took the 130 Peloton fabric and we put it into a beanie and a neck gaiter. So those of you familiar with the, the Merino he, uh, headwear and neck gaiter program, very similar, except it's gonna be in the Peloton fabrics. And then the final product that we're talking about today, which is a product that, that I created for, my, for myself, really. Hopefully you guys will, will see the benefit to it as well. But that's arm warmers. And something that I've used before in cycling and training is the ability to be in long sleeves as it gets hot, transfer into short sleeves. So I created a arm, wear, arm warmer out of the 130 Peloton. So when you're hot weather hunts and you're hiking out during the middle of the day, you just pop these off put them right in your cargo pockets, and now you've just gone from long sleeves to short sleeves. Same concept of what we've done with the zip-off bottoms, and now you've got taking your short sleeve Peloton, turn it into long sleeve when you need it, and back into short sleeve when you don't need it. And it's that flexibility that I think is important with, with the, these types of products. The other thing to think about with the arm armor is that it makes a great sleeve over bulkier materials uh, if you're shooting a bow and you want to keep anything from potentially hitting that bowstring when you release. And those arm warmers slide right up over the top because of the stretch and make a great sleeve protector uh, for your bowstring. So this is what we want to cover today, what I wanted to cover with you. It's uh, great to get these headwear programs rounded out. I'm really excited about the Kenai bottom for those later season hunts and active hunts where you need some insulation, uh, but you need the breathability. And the boxer shorts, you can run camo boxers, which I know all of us have always waited to run camo boxers every day. So now you've got your favorite camo patterns and something that you can wear to work every day underneath your pants and be more kudu. And I love it. And <laughs> my kids want camo boxers as well as they've seen me wearing them. So uh, really excited about this, these new products and these new programs for kudu. I think it's a, they're great additions to what we need and um, look forward to having them uh, out to you guys. I think you're gonna love them. So I'm gonna go ahead now and get the questions from Pat that you guys have typed in, and then we're gonna give away some gear. So let's get into those questions. Thanks, Pat. Um, all right, good question. Why Kenai versus Super Down? Why is it buff bottom? Um, why is it buff bottom versus a pant like Super Down? And Kenai, as we've talked about in the past, it's an active insulation. So that means it's because it's continuous fiber, we don't have to coat those fabrics. So we don't limit any breathability. So you're going to get uh, no clamminess, no buildup of sweat or moisture underneath that insulation, unlike super down, where we have to coat the fabrics to keep the down from coming back through. And that coating limits breathability. So if you spent time in the super down hiking, typically get pretty darn sweaty underneath it. It's really better to stay in your pack until you're gonna sit down in glass and put, and put it on. So that's the difference between Kenai and Superdown. And we put Kenai in a zip-off bottom versus a pant-like Superdown because it is active insulation. It is something you can travel and hike in. So you're gonna probably wanna run it underneath your attack pan or guide pants in colder situations. So how does the 240 beanie compared to the guide beanie? So those of you who have a guide beanie, this is going to be a nice upgrade for you um, because of the articulated fit, the wind resistance, and the comfort you get from a knit. So I think it's, uh, it's a great addition to the lineup. Certainly the guide beanie is a good product because it's soft shell, a great product. This can be a little bit better fit and really a more versatile product. How does Max Spec odor control treatment compare to natural antimicrobial properties by Merino Wool? It's a great question. And Merino wool is great because it's made up of a carotene protein, which is antimicrobial by nature. So it's naturally antimicrobial, as a lot of you know, and why we love it. Max Spec is an interesting antimicrobial treatment. I've looked at every antimicrobial anti treatment that's been on the market over the past decade. This one performs better than any I've ever tested. So last year, hunting in Nahani Butte, if you've seen that film, I hunted in the same shirts, uh, Peloton shirt, using Max Spec for over a week and never had an odor problem. Typically, I'd get a shirt that would last a day or two that was synthetic and have to bring a change. And I didn't have to change it at all. And that 
type of results from that product have been consistent from our customers and other people here at Kuyu that have tested it and used it. And it's by far the best antimicrobial treatment that's out there on, on synthetic fabric. So really confident in it. Merino, Peloton, it's kind of a personal choice in my opinion, whether you want, uh, what type of fabric you want next to your skin. I've really gotten to enjoy the, the fast drying properties of, of Peloton personally. There appears to be different fabrics used in the Peloton line. What are the primary differences? It's a good question. Peloton 130 is a next to skin fabric. So it's using PrimeFlex yarn, has zero elastic. Um, it's designed to be next to your skin and really wick the moisture off of your skin, which it does incredibly well and dries really fast. The 200 is a jersey faced fleece. So that is gonna give you some insulative properties. The jersey face is gonna give you some abrasion resistance and avoid burrs and, and things like that that a typical fleece would pick up. And then the 240 is a bonded fabric. So it's gonna give you wind resistance by construction. It's gonna give a little bit more warmth and it's gonna be a little bit heavier weight. So it's gonna wear more like a, like a soft shell type of product, but a little bit more stretch because it's knit. So you can wear it a little bit closer to your skin. So I think that answers those questions. Um, why is elastic so bad? You didn't catch that explanation. So um, it's probably somebody new to the brand, but we have been preaching this since day one is, is elastic's heavy, it holds moisture, and it wears out over time. Elastic and spandex are the same thing. Uh, I believe in using fabric innovations and technologies that avoid elastic. Tori is the leader in this, and they're how they have created PrimeFlex yarn to stretch and recover with zero elastic. And that's the big game changer for a lot of our products is this patented yarn that Tori has created that is so, such a great revolution to stretch technical fabrics, but the fact that we have zero elastic. So from the beginning, the first kit that we came out with at Kuyu, we took four pounds of elastic out of it from the previous brands, similar kit that I had created, and that's significant. And we've increased performance. So that's why elastic's so bad. When would I use Peloton accessories instead of Merino wool accessories? Again, this is a kind of a personal preference. Um, fabrics are inherently different by nature. Merino wool is hydrophilic, meaning it's going to pull moisture off your skin into the fabric and then evaporate it. There's advantages about, around that for you know, hot weather and cold weather. Um, and then you know, Peloton's hydrophobic, so it hates moisture. So it's gonna take the moisture off your skin and try to get rid of it as fast as, you, fast as it can. So it's gonna typically dry faster. Um, and again, it's, it's a bit of a personal preference. Neither of them are bad choices for mountain hunting. I really like Peloton because of how quickly it dries for, for my body type and what my skin likes uh, next to it. So um, I think that's all the main questions. Tired of relying on out-of-date numbers, spending too much on hunting consultants and seeing too little results? With Go Hunt Insider, the old way of doing things is over. With the introduction of draw odds and filtering 2.0, you'll have access to the most accurate, up-to-date information in the industry. You can filter by state, species, trophy potential, weapon, specific days or months of the year, harvest success rate, male-to-female ratios, and much more. All of this leads to easily finding the best hunt for you. So what are you waiting for? Visit GoHunt.com slash insider and join the movement. Use the J. Scott promo code when signing up and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Since 1982, the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix has made it their goal to provide the very best customer service combined with the latest and greatest optics and accessories in the business. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, and mounting accessories for any hunter's optical needs. Go to Outdoorsmans.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off all Outdoorsman's packs and pack accessories. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got Chris Rowe of Row Hunting Resources. And I'm excited to have Chris on today. We, this is a part two series here of uh, roosting strategies for western turkeys. Uh, in the prior part one episode, uh, we covered scouting uh, turkeys here in the western U.S. And uh, Chris, it's always nice to have you. Uh, how you doing, buddy? Doing all right, my friend. How you been? Good. Doing just great. I'm looking forward to talking about roosting turkeys here. So let's just dive right into it. 
um, talking about hunting in western U.S., uh, roosting. In my mind, I think roosting turkeys is one of those things that some people do not put enough uh, time into. And for me, it's in my mind, it's probably the most important thing to know and know how to do well when you're hunting turkeys out west because you know, I have hunters that come hunt uh, with me uh, for, uh, you know, Goulds and Merriams, and they place very little emphasis on roosting because where they hunt uh, back east or wherever, they say that the birds roost in the same spots all the time. And I kind of just shake my head because our birds out west, in my mind, don't roost in the same tree every night. They don't roost in the same area sometimes every night. Sometimes they'll be on the same ridge, but I find these birds move around a lot. They cover a lot of ground throughout the day, and, you know, they may cover two miles in a day and then, you know, loop back and roost wherever they're closest to when it, you know, when it gets dark. Um, Yes, I think you can find predominant roosting areas, um, but for me... I'm curious about your experience. It's rare that they roost in the same tree every day. Well, I agree with that. And, and to kind of go next step beyond that, people need to realize that in some of these mountain habitats, you know, I think we touched on it in part one, you might not have a huge population of birds. And so they're going to be in these pockets where, you know, out here on the river bottoms, you know, for Rios, I can get up on a hill and if it's a calm morning, I can literally hear more than a mile, 360 degrees around me, and I can hear birds all over the place. Whereas in the mountains, man, I might be just dealing with one pocket of of birds. And depending on what the terrain is like, you might not even have a clue in the world that they're there. Yeah, we went and we did all the scouting. We found tracks. We found droppings. We found all that. But if you're not out there trying to roost them, and trying to figure out exactly where they are, you're going to be looking for a needle in a haystack when it comes time to get ready to set up and actually work them. So I do think that people need to spend time out there, early mornings, late evenings, listening, getting on them, you know, getting on places where it gives you a good vantage point to listen multiple different directions, multiple different drainages and such. But yeah, I, I think people do. I think people need to get out there and listen and try to roost birds and I agree with what you just said. A lot of times they will use the same. Now, sometimes they'll use the same trees. If if the habitat is such to where you've only got one or two big mature ponderosas in a particular drainage or mountainside, well, I can, yeah, that's where they're going to be, period, because that's the best roost spots. But, you know, if I go down to say, well, whether it's Rampart Range or if I go down to southwestern Colorado on the Uncompagre Plateau, the entire mountainside is made up of giant ponderosa pines, then yeah, same thing. They're going to be, they will roost in a general area, but they may or may not be in the exact same tree that they were in the night before or the day before or whatever. And quite honestly, I've actually found in places where they actually have a, a daily cycle. So, and you know, if I, if I look at day one, they're in spot A, day two, they're in spot B, day three, they're in day uh, in spot C, well, all of a sudden, day four, they're back in spot A. They do a big round robin loop across the landscape. And if you're not out there roosting, you know, multiple times and sitting there and listening to that, you'd never pick up on that movement pattern. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I love the row hunting resources turkey module because you cover a lot of this stuff. And I encourage the listeners out there to check out uh, Chris's uh, turkey module where he he's going over a lot of this different uh, you know all these different things in talking about roosting and talking about the travel patterns and what have you. Um, looking at our outline here, uh, I want to talk about a few things and then have you comment on them. Uh, turkeys roost primarily in ponderosa pines. Now I'm talking mainly about Merriam's um, turkeys. There are rios in California and 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 they like those Norfolk pines. Um, they like, it's not a ponderosa, but it's another type of pine tree. A lot of times those rios like to roost, you know, over little small creeks. I find that Merriam's like to roost, you know, in ponderosa pines. They like to roost on 
east-facing ridges. That doesn't mean that all birds are going to roost on east-facing ridges, and we can talk about why birds roost a lot of times on east-facing ridges. Uh, public land birds rarely roost in the same exact tree, but often roost in the same general areas. I like to look for big contour breaks and ridge lines. I, ridge lines are prime roosting areas, and we can talk about why they're prime roosting areas. And in finding uh, roosted birds, I like to walk long ridges and listen off both sides, just as the turkeys do. So when you're looking at your topo maps or you're looking at new areas where you're going to hunt, I'm going to find maybe a place where a road you know, kind of lips out on a ridge and then turns back where you could just walk that ridge out where it's pretty steep on both sides. And like what you were saying earlier, that gives me the ability to walk a ridge line. So I'm covering country and I can listen now into two different drainages. And if I'm on a predominant ridge, sometimes that allows me to have enough height and elevation that not only can I listen off both sides, but then there's other feeder canyons and such where I can hear at a long distance and I'm basically taking inventory of, of where those birds are roosted. Um, I like to research topo maps and use Google Earth to find good uh, potential roosting areas. Um, you got any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, yeah. There's there's piles. Let's let's start. I, I think what we best do is just go right back to your list that you read and just start picking them apart um, one at a time because I, th I there's so much information in there that we can dive into that people ought to kind of really know. You know, you talked about primarily roosting in, in ponderosa pines. Well, absolutely. Uh, and, and most of the time that is just because of the nature of the habitat they lived in, they live in. I mean, a lot of these Western areas are more arid. And so the ponderosa pine is the most predominant forest type. But the, other, the beautiful thing about ponderosa pines is they grow and they have these just big horizontal limbs. And so when you say they, they roost in ponderosa pines, absolutely. But what I would suggest people also do is kind of take a look at the age structure of those ponderosa pines. If you look across the landscape, you look across a mountainside, there are going to be areas where you have really, really old, big, mature trees. And then you're going to have areas that have maybe younger trees, maybe more thicker patches of trees. All things being equal, if water is nearby, if food is nearby, and there's a variety of different terrain, and, a lot, and, and you have mixes of big, mature ponderosa pines versus small, younger age class ponderosa pine, in my experience, most of the time, you're going to find those birds in those bigger trees. Oftentimes, Why? well, because oftentimes, A, well, the bigger trees are going to have bigger limbs, and a bigger limb, it just holds more birds, and it's a lot easier for that bird to grab his feet onto and, and, and lock in at night. If you watch a bird, if you watch how a bird, you know, grabs and, and engages a limb, they're going to wrap their feet around that limb, and then when they settle in, when they basically squat down and, and set their breastbone on that, that limb, and they squat down, well, the tendons and everything pull those feet tight, okay, and it, and it just helps them lock in on that limb that night. Well, the smaller the limb, yeah, they can lock into it, but the more it's going to move with the breeze and the more it's going to move as they move or other birds are up there. So these big limbs allow them to lock on and just get in comfortable and are very secure during the night. But the other thing... Yeah, it's a more, it's a more stable platform, uh, I Absolutely. Think, but the other thing that oftentimes it does, it means you'll get these big giant ponderosas Ponderosa, and I don't need to get into a, a silviculture or you know tree biology lesson, but big ponderosas like a lot, of, or ponderosa trees like a lot of light, and big ponderosas like that get big like that because they're more open and they have more open habitats. Well, a lot of times if you have those giant ponderosas, there's more spacing between those trees. And it's a lot more open under those trees, which means it's a heck of a lot easier for that bird to jump up and fly up and get up into that tree. So for a variety of reasons, a lot of times they're going to be roosting in those big mature 
trees. Now, that's not to say they're not going to roost in smaller trees, especially if that's all the type of, of trees that are in the area. They're going to make do with what they've got. But if they have the choice, and if I'm scouting and I get up on a ridge and I look across the other sky, or other side, I'm going to take a look with my naked eye, and I'm also going to take a look with my binoculars, and I'm going to pick out those areas that have those giant ponderosa pines because that's where I'm going to go over and start looking because I have a feeling that's where they're going to come in and roost. Absolutely. Now, talk talk to me about – go ahead. Uh, I was just going to go to your next point. You're, you said yep. you're as far as east-facing ridges. Yep. I agree with that too. However, I will just qualify it and say – I think the reason why you'll find birds on those east-facing ridges is just because they want to be able to they, – they roost in places where they catch that morning sunlight. And so if you have a ridge line – or excuse me, a valley that runs east-west, okay, which means your, your slopes are north-facing or south-facing, okay, they, they may not be able to roost on a quote-unquote technical east face per se, but they're going to find a knob. They're going to find a place where, generally speaking, they're going to catch that, that first morning sunlight and with that um one thing that i always and and i i do not have this on the my web page i need to put this on there but one thing that i always kind of demonstrated for people during seminars if you take your hand doesn't matter right hand left hand doesn't matter and flatten it out put all your fingers together and make it like flat as a pancake Okay, stiff and flat as a pancake. You can see where you're the back of your hand. If you're looking at the back of your hand, you can see where the back of your hand meets and meets your fingers, those knuckles where that where your fingers start. If you keep your fingers flat and you bend your hand at those knuckles, and so you basically kind of make a, a an A-frame with your hand. So your so your fingers are straight together, and then the back of your hand is flat. And it's kind of got you, your knuckles, those knuckles create essentially a ridge line. If you look at the, both sides of your hand, on one side of your hand, the back of your hand is kind of big and flat. And all you have is that one prominent ridge of your knuckles versus on your finger side of your hand, you've got all the, if you, that's why the people call them finger ridges. If you look at all your fingers, each of those fingers can be its own little ridge. And in between your fingers, where your fingers touch, that's the valley between it. In the mountains, especially in Merriam's habitat, you could come across, if you're looking at your hand, you can come across two, both of those scenarios. Places where you have big, wide open, flat surfaces with one prominent ridge, kind of like the back of your hand. Or you can end up with areas that have a lot of finger ridges, a lot of little, you know, little, dra- you know, valleys, little drainages, kind of like the finger side of your hand. Well, my experience, if you're dealing with habitats that are like the back of your hand, where you have one single prominent ridge, a lot of times those birds are going to be roosted towards the top of that ridge, if not on top of the ridge. However, on those places where you have the little finger ridges, like the finger side of your hand, in my experience, the birds roost most of the time off of the top, not or not on the top of the main ridge, but rather just off, maybe three quarters of the way up the slope, or just you know maybe a quarter of the way off the side, but just off the top of the main ridge but on top of one of those little finger ridges. Why? I think it's my opinion, but I I have seen where the birds will climb to the tippy top of that ridge. And if you look at the terrain, as the slope falls away from you, you can have a 60, 70 foot tall giant tree. The base of that tree might be 50, 100 yards or whatever down the slope. But the tops of the trees are just literally straight out in front of you. And so the birds, they don't have to fly up that high. They just literally jump, flap, flap, and glide, and they fly laterally and just can kind of land right in the tops of the trees. It's very easy. They're lazy. Likewise, in the morning, 
when they go to pitch out, they don't have to fly out and go way down to the valley. Sometimes they will. They'll go way down to the valley bottom. But a lot of times what they'll end up doing is they'll just pitch out, and they'll pitch out and land the nearest spot on the ground, which is just right – not at the base of the tree. It's just right there laterally, you know, upslope a little bit. So it's just the shortest distance between two points, so to speak. And a lot of times that they will, in my opinion, the reason why they choose those, whether it's an east-facing slope or, say, for instance, you take your hand and, and that main ridge, that main knuckle ridge, maybe that, again, is running east-west. They will favor, if it's they're on a finger ridge, they will favor the little knobs that are kind of more on that east side. Because in the morning, as that sun comes up and lights the whole surrounding area, those east-facing aspects or those openings that are getting the first early morning light brighten up earlier, which means they can see it better. They can determine whether there's predators there. And for safety reasons, it gives them the first place to pitch out that offers them the best visibility so they can make sure they pitch out in a spot where it doesn't have any predators. So I don't know. Couldn't agree more. And if you, you know, we're not going to talk about it now, but make a note that if you're looking for tactical areas to find turkeys for an afternoon, evening hunt, finding those areas that Chris, I couldn't have said it any better than what you said, but if you're looking for where do I go in the evening, Find those places where Chris is just describing with the hand where the the part that's towards you is kind of a big flat open ridge and the backside is a bunch of fingers. Where do I want to be at 5 o'clock in the evening? I want to be up there on that ridge. So I'm catching birds that are going to come to the top of the ridge to pitch and fly, you know, down off that ridge into their roost tree. Well, they got to get to the top first to fly down in there. And they're either going to walk up those finger ridges or they're going to come up the flat ridge, but they're going to make it to the top. So a good place, in my opinion, to be hunting, you know, five o'clock till dark in states that allow hunting in the evening. I'm going to be on those ridge lines where I think those turkeys are going to be to pitch from there into the roostry. Yeah. I'm going to have the decoy set up and I'm going to be doing my calling periodically to try and catch those birds that are down in the low areas loafing and then they make their big move from, you know, there's a time frame like before dark where they make a big move, in my opinion, up to a high ridge to then coast down into their tree and I've shot a lot of birds in the last hour of light because of being in those places where they like to pitch into their rooster. Yeah, and and I know, I know you said you didn't want to talk about it, but I don't want to. I don't want to forget it. I don't want to forget. Yeah. I don't want to forget about this tidbit. And what you said there, you know, allows you to hunt till dark. Now, some states, the well, the 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 main states that I am familiar with with West, they, it's it's thirty minutes before sunrise until sunset, which means the sun hits the horizon, but you've still got that 30 minutes of, of light, if you will, available. Well, you nailed it. Sometimes they'll make that last scramble move. They'll be down low, loafing somewhere. I have seen where birds don't make that move until literally the last 15 minutes of daylight or last 10 minutes of daylight, they just make a mad scramble up the mountain. But by all means, they're going to make that move up. So, yeah, even if you can't hunt until dark, if you if you have to end your hunt 30 minutes or basically at sunset, I'm still going to set up there. I'm still going to put my decoys up there. I'm still going to call from there. Because that's where the birds want to go anyway. That's where they're going to be. So get there. And if you know, say they are in the bottom of the valley and you know that, okay, then maybe set halfway between. But regardless, you know, most of the time, in general, they're going to be making a move up. So don't handicap yourself by staying at the bottom until dark and then wonder why the birds aren't coming to you. Well, because they're, they're, they've got to go to the top of the mountain. They, they want to go up. Absolutely. Let's take a break here. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? 
PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at PhoneScope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at PhoneScope. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance products. Check them out at WildernessAthlete.com and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any order. Okay, I, I know we've still got a few talks about contour breaks and ridge lines and what have you, but let's we can we can dive into that, but let's cover some ground here on how to roost birds. Sure. Two hours before it gets dark, I'll be on those ridge lines like I talked about where I think turkeys are going to be and I'm going to be listening. I'm going to be still. I'm walking quietly. It's important that we can hear birds and we don't spook birds. People that go out with me, they kind of, some some people frown on it because I don't like to walk down a long ridge line just talking to my buddy back and forth because birds can hear from a long distance away. So a lot of times, you know, once I leave the truck, it's, you know, whisper mode. And anybody that's hunted with me, my nephews, they've learned real quick that you don't just yell out, hey, uncle, you know, you got to be quiet when you're in these areas because you may have a bird that's, you know, 100 yards in front of you. You don't know it, but they hear you and off they go. So that, that that's one thing. Uh, oftentimes we'll use a box call to try and strike a bird. And the reason for that is I'm up on a ridge line and a box call carries the sound carries uh, a long ways. And if I strike a bird and he gobbles, he's down in the bottom, a lot of times I'll just shut up. If, if it's bef- the night before the hunt, say the hunt hasn't even started, I don't want to get a bird all worked up. I don't really even want him coming to my call. I'm just trying to locate turkeys. At that point, I'll probably just sit and I'll just sit and wait and listen and listen. And I've roosted a lot of birds where I called one time and they gobble their brains out. I never call again. The next thing I know, they're 40 yards from me looking all around. I don't make another peep. And then I just walk them, watch them walk off, you know, keep my binos on them. I stay put. Sometimes I just let them walk off and then I listen to them fly up and that bird's roosted. So the next morning I can get right in there on that exact spot. I do a lot more listening than calling. I try and cover country. Uh, Our goal is to be in the best spot where we think the birds will be the last 30 minutes of daylight. Once we reach that prime area, I'm just sitting, listening, and observing. I'm not talking to my buddy. I'm not. I'm listening. And I actually listen for birds to gobble on their way to the roost. I listen for birds, the sound of flapping wings going up to the roost. And then I listen for birds once they've reached the roost and they're in the roost. A lot of times they'll give a gobble or two and sometimes even more to let other birds know where their position is. Now, it's very common in my mind that you hear, and now I'm listening for, was it one bird? Was it two birds? Did I hear five birds? I try and actually count the amount of birds up in the tree. So I'm taking inventory of, you know, are there hens with that gobbler? Is it two gobblers alone? And I'm constantly making mental notes of what I'm observing. Chris, all right, hold up. I'm making I'm making notes. You, golly, you just that's the thing. That's why I enjoy. T- I mean, I do. I love these man because I think we have such a similar philosophy and a, and a lot and so many things are so similar. I'm just I'm just scratching notes as you're as you're talking because I agree with everything. Um, <laughs> all right, I. I I'm going to pick apart what you just said, and I'm going to touch on a couple things. Number one, okay. um, you said you like getting out there two hours before dark. 
I agree wholeheartedly. And I do like the fact. Just to be clear, two hours uh, in the afternoon yeah. before it gets dark. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes. yes. Okay. If we're talking about evening, listening in the yeah. evenings, yes. Okay, two hours. And the reason why I like that, and I agree with that, and I do that. You can, depending on the population of birds that you have, and depending on the density of birds in your area, you can have two situations. Now, sometimes those two situations overlap, and they do the both, and they do both of these. But however, sometimes you can have single toms, or maybe a pair of toms, that are off on their own. They do not have their own flock yet. Okay. It's not uncommon if they know that the, if those birds know that they want to roost in a particular area, okay, they might not go and literally stand their little toenails right under the roost tree that they're going to fly up in. However, late afternoon, early evening, an hour or two before fly up, they oftentimes will make their way that direction and they'll be in the area and they'll just sound off. Because what they're doing is broadcasting and trying to say, hens, hey, I'm over here. You know, come to me. And they're just going to sound off occasionally in and around the roost site before it's even any even close to being time to fly up. Well, if that's the case, if, if you can be out there and you can hear that, bingo, baby. If you If you can get some binoculars on them or a spotting scope on them and you can see where they are, or at the very least, you heard them sound off. Now you've got an hour or more to slowly make your way that direction. Again, like I said before, is you might have these isolated pockets. Some of the terrain is such, and maybe if you have a nice calm day where you don't have a lot of wind and you can hear long distance, that bird sounds off. He might be three-quarters of a mile away. Well, it's going to take you some time to navigate that terrain and get over there. Sometimes it may, the best thing you can do is go back to the truck, get in, drive around the mountain, Get closer, all right? So if you're out there early, sometimes you can hear those birds sound off in and around the areas that they're going to roost in well before sunset. However, the other thing is, though, sometimes you may not. If that gobbler or a group of, of birds is in a tight-knit group, again, I talk about this with understanding river bottom rios in the elk, or excuse me, the turkey module on the website. If you have those those habitats where you have a small population, and I, I don't I don't want to dive into turkey biology too bad here, but sometimes those birds will stay in the same flock all winter long. So the gobblers are mixed in with the jakes, are mixed in with the hens. They all go to the same place just because the habitat is limited. Well, they know everybody. It's not like they're going to be surprised at another turkey's kind of showing up. I mean, they know everybody. And so they travel together. In those situations, they're a tight-knit group. They might not, go especially preseason, they might not gobble at all until they do get up in the tree. And he might only gobble once or twice, and that's it. Okay? So by being out there early, it gives you the opportunity to pick up on, is that gobbler off on his own? Or is or are, if there's more than one, or are they off on their own? If they're not off on their own and he is gobbling a lot before sunset, well, okay, that gives you an idea of his disposition, kind of take his temperature a little bit. And we'll, I know that on your outline, Jay, you've got that coming up here in a minute. But it gives you an idea of what his temperament is. But then by the same token, if you are out there and you're in the spot and there is nothing, nothing going on until all of a sudden, yeah, I mean, it's just about dark and all of a sudden you hear, and a bird fly up, and you're like, wait a minute, that sounds like wings. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's one gobble. Okay, well, and especially like you said, if, you, if you're counting wing beats, you can hear multiple birds going up to roost, and he doesn't say a peep until it's almost pitch black, and he gobbles one time. Oh, baby, I know. I, now, I, again, I've, I've been able to get his, uh, an indication of his disposition, or I might have a, a hint that, Goodness gracious, he is locked down with those hens. He's not fired up. He's. I'm going to have to be close. I'm going to have to be, you know, if I'm going to work him the next morning or whatever, I'm going to have to be very tight to that roost, and I'm probably going to end up being in a situation where I'm going to have to call the entire flock with me. So it gives you an indication of what you're going to have to deal with later. 
Chris, I, I want to add one thing to what you're saying there, which is great stuff. Let's say in that same scenario, you hear, and then boom, one gobble, and he waits till right when it's dark, and I'm thinking, okay, hens, I'm thinking, okay, gobbler, I'm thinking, eh, it's going to be tough in the morning. Now, same situation, across the drainage, I can eyeball a ridge across that I can, I've been sitting by my tree, I've been looking where I have vantage, waiting for this to happen, this bird's roosted pretty close to me, I've been glassing down there across the drainage and I see that, oh, there's a finger ridge and it's straight across from me, all of a sudden across the ridge I hear, just uncontrollably gobbling, that's usually going to tell me that, okay, the gobbler that's kind of the boss is over here with the hens. The gobbler that's across the way, now I'm going to be trying to glass that bird in the tree and say, is that a, he sounds like he's really broadcasting his gobble. He's much more eager than this bird is here that already has hens. Maybe I should then set up on the bird across the drainage that's gobbling his brains out, or maybe I should set up in the bottom between these groups of birds. A lot of times, I'm going to pick the bird that sounds more desperate, quote-unquote, or more eager than the bird that's gobbled one time with hens. Give me your thoughts. <laughs> I am scrambling right now. Okay, here we go. If folks, I mean, and I'm not trying to pull people, this, this, this enhances what you're talking about right now. I have a video on our, our uh, YouTube channel. It's through the season. My, I've got a video series called Through the Seasons, okay, where it's just my hunting videos. They're mostly education-based, but there's one called, if you go to YouTube, it's Big New Mexico Merriam's Turkey, okay? Dude, you're nailing it. What you're talking about right now is literally the heart and soul of that episode. It's episode three. I talk about that exact thing, except I flip it. I do the exact I do the exact opposite. I do the exact opposite. If if I what you just talked about, you've got one bird on one side of the mountain or in one in one end of the valley. And he you hear multiple fly ups and he waits and he gobbles once. But over here on this other side of the valley or down this valley, the birds are just rocking. You're absolutely right. Those birds that are rocking are probably going to be a little bit easier to call the next morning. But I can almost bet you dollars to donuts, the one bird with the hens or the one bird that just sounds off and does it once, he is a mature bird, he's an old bird, he's a dominant bird, and I'll bet you he's a giant yeah, and so big old spurs. On oh, them. I can yeah. See now. And here's the other thing, and I talk about that this in that video. All right. The thing is, is if we're talking about public land, now I know you, you know, you've got where you outfit on your some of your ranches. You're the only you're the only people that you need to deal with most of the time. But if we're talking about public land, which a lot of Western turkey hunters are going to be dealing with, here's where you start getting savvy with what with how you start playing. The birds. I know what's coming and I like it. Exactly. So, and I, and in that video, okay, again, big New Mexico Merriam's turkey. Put that into YouTube. It's the Row Hunting Resources channel. Watch it because I talk about this. Anybody else that's listening and trying to roost birds, they're going to hear that those that group that or the that one. They're going to hear the turkeys that are just rocking and going crazy. Okay. Well, guess where they're going to go in the morning? Yep. They're going to go after the birds that are rocking. Well, if you want to go for the, after the birds that are rocking because it sounds awesome and they're desperate and they want company and you think they're going to be easier to call, which they probably will, well, understand that every other hunter is probably going to do the same thing. So next morning, you're going to have like three or four guys all piled around this one group of birds. Whereas... If you've spent time practicing your calls, well, I, I, I know, Jay, we're going to get into this here in a minute, but if you spend your time with 
you know, practicing your calls and you can call, call decently and you've got a good decoy setup, blah, 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 and you get your setups right. If you choose the bird that gobbles once, you're going to have him by – you're the only hunter that's going to be on that bird. And so you literally can look across that landscape, listen across the landscape, hear the different birds going. And if you know you've got other turkey hunters in that area, you know where they're going to go. Skip the, skip the birds that are going crazy. Go after the one that just sounds off once. Because here's the, here's the beautiful thing about it. If you say, and again, this is, this is why I love the game. This is why I just absolutely love turkey hunting and, and likewise elk hunting because of the game, the, 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 the mental strategy, the chess match about the whole thing. If you go after the one that sounded off by him just once and he's got the hens, if you get in there and work him in the morning, you very well, most likely are going to, A, going to be the only hunter on that bird. So you can hunt him and work him in a relaxed state and how he needs to be worked without any pressure that, oh, geez, you know, someone else, I've got to compete with another hunter. If it works and you call him in, great, kill him, boom, you, ha- you just killed the most dominant bird on that mountain, most likely. But here's the thing, if it doesn't work and those other hunters don't kill every single one of those other eager turkeys, which they probably aren't going to, those other eager turkeys are probably going to be running the ridgeline all day long. You'll have a chance at them later. And or they're going to come yes. because they know the hens are over where you're at. They're probably yes. going to fly over across the canyon and come up to your setup. Even if your dominant bird yes. works off with the hens, you make one turkey call and probably those eager beavers are probably going to come storming in. They're headed there anyway. Let's, exactly. Let's take a quick break right here. That's, this is great stuff. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camel patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it. They can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at utahhydrographics. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. Yeah, I mean, Chris, I totally get what you're saying, and I think I'll take uh, one more strategy step in this in Roosting Birds one step further to exactly what you're saying. And I remember that video you're talking about. That's it. I loved that through the seasons, that whole New Mexico um you did a bunch of great hunts and, and some great video on that on that New Mexico hunt. Um, going back to what I said before, put yourself in the situation where you've got the wing flaps, you hear the one bird gobble, and then across the drainage you hear gobble, 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 and you hear very eager birds. Another thing that I'm going to be doing on public land is I am listening, I am glassing, I am staying in that spot till dark. I am looking for headlights yes. or headlamps walking out yes. on the opposite ridge where the eager beavers are. I am listening for abnormal coyote howls. <laughs> I'm listening for yes. any type of owl hoots that I can delineate uh, or determine that is a hunter that's calling to those eager beavers. Yep. And even more than that, I'm listening after dark for vehicles 
to be driving from that area like they parked up on that opposite ridge line and now they're driving their quad and they've started and they're driving off because a lot of times if you just stay put you got it you can see now in the situation where and and I'll even wait till dark and then I'll even go back you know hike back in the dark get to my truck drive over to the other ridge line look in the has there been anybody that's pulled off is there any vehicle here can I determine at all if there's been anybody here? If the answer is I stayed there till dark and nobody's around, then I have the dilemma. Do I go after the bird that's got the hens that gobbled once that I know yeah. exactly where yeah. it is? Or do I go after the eager beavers? And sometimes I would do one or the other. But if I'm just trying to kill a turkey, if I can go after an eager beaver that's going to come storming in the first peep I make, Usually that's what I'm going to do. But you make a great point that when you're hunting public land, a lot of times not only are you hunting birds, but you're also not hunting people, but you're people managing your your yep. management with other hunters. And so, you know, you have to, you know, people that go roost with me, they sometimes shake their head and they're like, I can't believe you go into this much detail for a bird and we're not going to get back to camp now till 10 o'clock at night and we just skip dinner because you want to kill a bird so bad in the morning, you're over checking, okay, is there anybody else camped on that ridge? Is there anybody else parked on that ridge? You know, and trying to ascertain every bit of information that I can to make a decision. Do I go after the bird with hens? Do I go after the eager beaver? So, I mean, yeah. Great, great stuff there, Chris. Well, and, and I think you made a good point there uh, when your you're, you're hunter management, your strategy management, basically, trying to figure out what you want to do. I guess I will say that if the other thing, too, well, number one, no, for me, I, I, I don't even know how many turkeys I've killed. I really don't. I've lost track. And that's not bragging. It just means I've killed a lot of turkeys. I just love it. Right. And to me, to take that a step further, I've never been one to have to say I've killed 30 birds, yeah, yeah. I've killed 100 birds, yeah. I've killed 205 birds, yeah. and some people do, and that's fine. Oh, there, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll flat out tell you, there's there's people that killed way more turkeys than I have. I mean, there's if you uh, was it North Dakota or South Dakota, you can kill like 83 a year or something. I don't know. It's stupid how many birds you can kill up there. And so if you live in some of these areas, like especially Nebraska, where you can kill three birds a year, and you know some of these people have grown up in some of these states where you can kill you know, three, four, five turkeys. Okay. You're, you're yeah, in Texas. You can kill five. Yes, so I mean, of course you're going to kill more birds than me, but I mean, on the whole, I, I just, I've, I hunted from New York to Washington state to New Mexico and Colorado and, and pretty much everywhere in between. And I just love it. However, I say all that because there's not a two year old Turkey in the world. That's going to walk by me and not catch something in the face. I agree. I, I, you know, I have, it's funny, I've killed some great birds with some gigantic beards, but my nemesis, I, I have, I think the biggest spurred turkey I've ever killed, I think it had inch and an eighth or inch and a quarter spurs. I've seen some of these people shooting these gigantic inch and a half spurs or whatever. I never let them get that far. I just, if yeah. it has a full fan, it's a dead bird. It's a, I always say if it if it has a fan, if it has a beard, and if it's gobbling, it's, it's in trouble. It's in trouble, exactly. Yeah. So if I'm on public ground and I know that I have limited time in which to hunt, and just like you said, I get up there and I'm the only person on the mountain, at that point I've got the one lone gobbler gobbling, you know, gobbles once, or I've got the 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 party over there that's just rocking and rolling if they are literally on two sides i mean they're completely separate where i have to commit one or the other i have to make a decision and either go after one and skip the other because of the way the terrain and distance is then yes i'll be honest with you probably i'm going after the ones that are rocking because i just enjoy that and i want to fill my tag However, if those two are in close proximity to one another, say they're on the same ridge, but they're just separated by like maybe a quarter of a mile or maybe a half mile, if I have access to both and they are in close proximity to one another, then that's when I do choose the one that gobbled by himself because like you said, Jay, they're going to move. 
they're probably going to, those, those ones that are rocking and rolling are probably going to make a move in the direction of the gobbler that has the hens and gobble just once. They are just separated because that main, the mature gobbler has kicked them out and they're not getting any play with the hens that that gobbler has. So what they do is they will separate themselves behaviorally in the evening. They'll go roost in a separate area, gobble their brains out because what they're trying to do is to attract their own hens. If hens show up in the morning, that are not part of that the the other gobblers, you know, harem. Well, then great, they'll fly down and they'll spend their time with those hens. But if those hens don't show up, if new hens don't show up, they're going to fly down, they're going to gobble, and then they're going to make a beeline over to the one that was gobbling just once anyway. They're going to go that way. So, I you made a good distinguishing thing there. It, it depends on for me. It depends on how close those two groups, if you will, those styles of gobblers are. If they're in close proximity to one another, I'm going to make a play for the more mature bird just for the game's sake of it, understanding that the younger birds are probably going to move my way anyway. But if they are separated across that landscape and I don't have to worry about other hunters, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the party. I'm going to go to the ones that are rocking and rolling, knowing full well they're probably two-year-old birds, and I'm going to have a blast. I love two-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, j- just in an effort I know we got more to talk about but just in an effort just to keep this moving so we get right. as much out right. of there as well, we can then, then let me, the, then let me t- okay then let me just skip ahead and let me touch on the couple of the other things that you had mentioned because I think there's some there are points in there yeah. you said speed walking you know going down those ridges and, and glassing and listening and, and, and you were talking about the fact that when you go with someone you know it's not that that enjoyable because you're not talking and you're just you're out there for a mission. Well, again, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Here's a little bit of a tidbit for folks listening. If you are going with a partner, okay, and I don't care if that's your best buddy, hunting buddy, or if you're going out with your kids, okay, if they're young kids, have them along with you. But if they're teenage kids and they're part of the strategy session, if you will, what I do Guys, this concludes episode 131, part two, Roosting Strategies with Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. Make sure to check the next episode, part three, episode 132, the second part of Roosting Strategies with Chris Rowe.